We're in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the book that promises a blessing for reading it. And we're in chapter two. We're gonna look at the church at Thyatira in verses 18 through 29. If you'd like to open in your Bibles to that passage or navigate on your device, if you're online, uh, you can quit playing Words with Friends now and go to uh, calvaryhanford.com slash transcripts and follow along with the uh, teaching. But whatever, whatever way of studying God's word appeals to you. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, the topic, Jesus exposes a woman in the church in Thyatira who claims to be a prophetess but is more like a notorious witch and harlot from the Old Testament. The title of our message, Woohoo, Witchy Woman, She Got the Saints in Her Sights. Let's have. <laughs> I have to do it. I'm sorry. It's... Father, thank you for our, uh, our meeting together as your body, as your bride. Pray for us here, Lord, and those watching online that we would be blessed because we came, that we'd get an extra blessing because we're reading uh, this book that promises a blessing. As always, we, we want to know about this letter intellectually. We want to study it from the point of view of understanding it and its first century context. But we want to be touched by it as well, Lord, in the sense that you're here moving among us. Your spirit is uh, taking the word and bringing it to our hearts between the soul and the spirit where only you can speak. We want to know that we had ears to hear what the spirit had to say today to us individually and also to our church. And so, Lord, uh, help us to understand what you promised us, and that is that you would walk in the midst of the lampstand and that the lampstand is the church, and that's us today, Lord, here gathered together. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. A judge in New Zealand granted a young girl's request that she be made a ward of the court so that she could legally change the name her parents gave her. What was her name, you ask? Tallulah does the hula from Hawaii. That's true. Her parents are now serving a life sentence in Alaska. But anyway, one reader left this comment on the article. He said, my unusual name hasn't affected me at all. In fact, it has helped me make friends and improve my confidence, especially since leaving school. It was signed Russell Sprout. We all remember the boy who had to fight his way through life on account of his deadbeat, absent father naming him Sue. Sad that we know that. There are a few names that have become notorious and therefore commonly are used as insults. Judas and Benedict Arnold are used to describe a backstabbing, double-crossing traitor. Scrooge describes a penny-pinching cheapskate miser. Nimrod used by Bugs Bunny to describe an idiot. We were watching an old episode of Survivor the other day. What else is there to do? And uh, they called Philip Shepard a nimrod. And I thought, man, that's, that's reach. I don't recommend you use that. But anyway, it is biblical, however. One woman's name stands out as the most notorious. Two days after Kamala Harris, not her, was sworn in as vice president, a... Not that name. A Southern Baptist pastor went on Twitter with this. I can't imagine any truly God-fearing Israelite who would have wanted their daughters to view Jezebel as an inspirational role model because she was a woman in power. 
The Bible identifies Jezebel as a harlot who practiced witchcraft. You find that in 2 Kings 9.22. The dictionary says the name denotes a wicked, shameless woman. Synonyms listed in the thesaurus are, I felt uncomfortable mentioning them in church. Jesus boldly called a woman who was attending church in Thyatira, Jezebel. He would certainly have been banned from all social media uh, as a result of that. Now, Jesus' bride, the church, was being seduced. And like the jealous bridegroom he is, the Lord was taking action. The seduction of Christians is a constant strategy of the devil. Jezebels of various kinds are to be expected and strongly resisted. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jezebel is in the church to seduce you. And number two, Jesus is in the church to secure you. Let's take a look at Jezebel in verses 18 through 23. Jesus used language that pictured a betrothed bride being seduced. He thereby urged Thyatira as their bridegroom to remain pure for their wedding. And so keep that in mind as we go through this text. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. As I tell you each week in these letters, angel means messenger or the one who brings the message. In this case, the message was to be read was scripture. The Apostle Paul instructed Pastor Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And so the angel is therefore most likely referring to the pastor who would be the one normally who would read uh, scripture to the congregation. Now, the Apostle John was the inspired human author of the Revelation. In chapter 1, he saw Jesus and he described him. Jesus introduced himself to each church using one or more of those descriptions from chapter 1. The description he chose spoke directly to the circumstance of each church. To Thyatira, he was the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. If you read commentaries, you'll encounter dozens of suggested meanings for eyes like fire and feet like brass. It leaves you wondering which is the correct one. I think we need to take a broader view. And when we do that, it turns out that there's a verse in the Old Testament book of Daniel that introduces a person with fiery eyes and brass feet. Daniel 10.6 says his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. Now, some Bibles say uh, brass, some say bronze, but it's the same word being translated in both cases. Daniel saw the Lord in a pre-incarnate appearance. Jesus described himself to Thyatira in a way that referred them back to this passage. And so a Jew especially uh, would hear this and they would know from their understanding of the Old Testament that uh, Jesus was describing himself the way this man in Daniel 10 was described. So how did this description of the Son of God address their situation in Thyatira? Well, after he saw Jesus, Daniel gets an earful of prophecy regarding his second coming. And then in the second section of this letter, the second coming is prominent. And so this reference is telling the reader or the listeners that Jesus is the Messiah who is coming And the saints in Thyatira likely knew that Jesus was returning with his bride, the church, at his second coming. And if they didn't know it 
right then when they were hearing the letter for the first time, they would when the reading got to chapter 19 of the Revelation. And so this is, again, Jesus' way of saying, I'm coming, I'm the Messiah, I'm the man from Daniel. But in your case, you need to remember, I'm coming as your bridegroom and you're my bride, so don't submit to the seductions of any earthly Jezebels. It's all satanic. And so whoever this woman was in the church, they were to think of her as a seductress leading to the pure, precious uh, bride of Jesus into both physical and spiritual adultery. Quite simply, a betrothed bride ought to recognize and decisively reject seduction. So verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. I absolutely did not uh, expect a commendation like this for a church that was allowing a Jezebel to operate in its midst. Tells me that there were many genuine believers who had not been seduced by her. Their love here is agape. It is the self-sacrificing love that is produced in the heart of a believer by the presence of God in his or her life. It's a love that you can only have as a believer. Service is the word from which we get the word deacon. It was used of waiters who would wait tables and be attentive to every need while remaining almost invisible. Do you ever have a really great waiter or waitress? We've all had bad ones, sadly. Uh, but, you know, cut them some slack. But every now and then you get a waiter or waitress that is so on top of that they, they almost anticipate what you want to eat and when you want to eat it. It's fantastic. I hope you tip well. Wait a minute. Some people are thinking, what's a waiter? What's a restaurant? They had faith. Here it indicates faith working, or we would say faithfulness. They were faithful people. They followed through. And patience is a word that indicates a, a hopeful waiting. They weren't stressed, they weren't angry, they weren't bitter. They, when they were having to wait, they waited with expectation, wondering what God would do next. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Think of that as a tweet. This would, I mean, this would absolutely get you knocked off of Twitter uh, or social media uh, to just come out and say that. I mean, this poor Baptist pastor, he got, uh, he's getting all over the place, you know, messed up because of what he said and he didn't even mention the woman's name. He just assumed everybody knew he was talking about. Uh, and so Jesus, go, he goes for it. Now, Jezebel, in order to form an alliance with the pagan Sidonians, King Ahab of Israel took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal. Queen Jezebel introduced the worship of her gods, Asherah and Baal, to Israel. Fast forward about a thousand years to the church in Thyatira. There, Jezebel was claiming to be a prophetess, but her prophecies were satanic, and they were seducing the saints to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. In Thyatira, you could not work if you did not belong to a trade guild. It was all union shops, period. There were no independent contractors. Each guild was dedicated to and was worshipped, uh, and worshipped rather, a pagan god or goddess. Every year, it was mandatory for you to attend a feast to the god or goddess of your guild. And so at least annually, you had to go to one. At that feast, the food you were served was first openly sacrificed to an idol of the god in a pagan religious ceremony. And at that feast, 
The god or the goddess was honored by rituals that involved uh, immoral, uh, perverted sexual behavior. Christians had trouble with this. How far could they or should they go as mandatory members of the trade guilds? I mean, they didn't even want to attend, obviously. A woman in the church claimed to receive prophecies that encouraged them that it was all right to attend the guild meetings and to partake in the pagan practices. The church's leaders allowed her prophecies to go unchallenged. And that's kind of a, it's almost a separate study. It's, you know, but uh, you notice that word allow, you allow this to happen. Uh, That tells us that it is uh, the responsibility of leaders in a church to allow or sometimes to disallow things. Uh, You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you're quenching the Holy Spirit by disallowing this, that, or the other thing. Uh, But Jesus would say, is that really the Holy Spirit if it's out of order and if it doesn't really line up with the Bible? I've been in a lot of church services and even home fellowships where somebody will give a prophecy, what they say is a prophecy, and it obviously doesn't line up with the Word of God. In either its tone or its text, it just isn't something that the Lord would say. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 said, hey, you need to judge these things. It's great if God wants to speak to us, but you need to stop then and pay attention to it. Uh, I've known people who prophesy wrong things all the time, and they're recognized as prophets and prophetesses in their church because they say, thus saith the Lord, and then it doesn't happen. Oh, well, let's move on to the next thing. And so really, we're just supposed to take it serious. And I'm gonna let you in on a secret. I live in terror every Sunday that Elijah's gonna visit our church. I don't mean the real Elijah, but the guys who think they're Elijah. It's a famous character that, you know, I, I know there's, I can tell you 10 stories of churches I know where during the message, Elijah popped up and started preaching to the congregation. And uh, actually, that's an easy one because our highly trained ushers would just tackle him and drag him out. But uh, sometimes somebody who is maybe even recognized as spiritual will start saying, hey, the Lord told me this, or they'll start some new doctrinal position or something like that. And, uh, you know, if, You need to deal with it. You can't let it go. And so the Lord, he says, hey, your leaders are allowing this and I'm letting it go for a while, but now I'm gonna deal with it. And you guys just keep hanging in there while this happens. And so he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Our gracious God, always long-suffering with sinners, withholding judgment, not willing they perish, but that they would receive eternal life. The literal wording of time to repent, I'm told, is she does not wish to repent. It was a conscious free will decision on the part of this woman. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, his grace is operating on your heart to free your will so you can repent and be saved. You can repent. Do you wish to? Uh, That's the question if you're not a believer. Jesus came as, as a man. He lived a sinless life. He died in our place on the cross. Uh, he, he said that by his dying on the cross, he could bring all men to Christ, especially those who believe. And so you can repent and believe if you wish to. Verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, her followers, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts And I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
Jesus explained his use of great tribulation as a sickbed and said, I, and said, rather, I will kill her children with death. And so he's not going to consign her and her followers to the great tribulation. He was about to make them sick and kill them. In the Old Testament story, just to finish up with Jezebel, first her children and then she was killed with death. Jezebel was thrown out of a tower window, stomped, and then eaten by wild dogs until, and I quote, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. The uh, first graders are getting this story this morning. (laughs) We decided just this week to start a thing where they parallel my teaching so that we're all on the same page. So if you have kids in the uh, Sunday school, mommy... Would our dog ever eat us? And no, we wouldn't do that. Maybe. (laughs) There are references in the New Testament to individuals being killed with death. Right away, you think of Ananias and Sapphira in the first century church. They sold their land and then lied about the amount of the proceeds they donated to the church. They were killed with death one after the other. In the church in Corinth, some of the believers were misbehaving at the potluck that preceded the Lord's Supper. They were making spaghetti and hoarding it for themselves. Worse, they were getting drunk before taking the Lord's Supper. And so Paul said some of them were being disciplined by God with weakness and sickness, and some were being killed with death. Now, let me give you a caution here. While sickness and death can still be God's discipline, it is rare. If you are sick or dying, it is not a discipline for sin unless you are a Jezebel or are committing particularly heinous sins that endanger the church. So God can use this as a discipline today. Uh, Does he? Yes, but, uh, you know, only in especially heinous cases. So don't be burdened that, you know, uh, know, I'm sick and I've contracted this disease and so the Lord must be... Uh, displeased with me, not at all. Jesus said, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. His dealings with the children of Jezebel would become a matter of public knowledge among the churches. Reminds us of the killing of Ananias and Sapphira, bringing fear upon the church, a godly fear. It also reminds me of a story I've told you many times, but maybe you haven't heard it, of the uh, swat I got from our football coach one day. Remember when, now, for those of you who are millennials, when I was a kid in school, and uh, things were pretty, you know, uh, antique. They used to discipline you by paddling you with a paddle. It was all legal and good, and everybody liked it. And uh, most of the teachers, though, were wimpy, and they didn't swat you very hard. But not so Mr. Roosh, I learned. Uh, he looked like, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, he looked like a gorilla. Uh, and he was the football coach. I, I probably misled you into thinking he was my football coach. I did not play football because I'm a wimpy person. But uh, uh, he gave us swats one day. I, I don't want to go through the whole story, but my friend and I, Kirby Clausen, we both got swats so hard that we cried. And, you know, we're in the ninth grade. We're at the top of the food chain. We're apex predators at the junior high. <laughs> And we were crying, and he sent us outside in tears so that all of our fellow students could see that we were crying, uh, and it struck fear into their hearts. And so discipline can have a good effect on a larger group of people, and that was the end of our SWAT contest, by the way. Yeah, after that, we were done. 
And then he says uh, something else here, or as soon as I find my place, and I will give to each one of you according to your works, his gifts to us for eternity, for our works far surpass the temporary sinful indulgences of this world. There were Nicolaitans in Ephesus. There were Nicolaitans and Balaamites in Pergamos. Jezebel attended church in Thyatira. Attending church has proven to be a successful strategy for the devil. Having the devil in church creates what you might call a hostile works environment. But guess what? Jesus also attends church. In chapter 1, he compares the churches to lampstands. He said there that he was in the midst of the seven lampstands. A bridegroom and a harlot walked into a church. You can finish that joke for yourself. One of them has secured you by giving you the indwelling Holy Spirit as an engagement gift of his abiding love. The other seduces you by appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The choice seems fairly simple. And now to you, and uh, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Jezebel's doctrine was to encourage sexual immorality and participation in the sacrifices to idols. What were the depths of Satan? And who are they in as they say? Well, language scholars conclude that they means Jezebel and her followers. And what it seems to be saying here is that they openly claim to have tapped into the same deep spiritual power source as Satan did. The power was neutral, they said, and it could be used for good or evil. It's an old satanic teaching. We know it today as the force. Sorry, you Star Wars fans. It's okay. But that's, that's essentially what Jezebel was saying. There's a force, and I use it for good, and they use it for evil, but we all should use it because it's out there. It's the force without the cuteness of Grogu. And so, you know, you might, oh, the force, look at him throwing those, you know, stormtroopers around. Isn't that cute? Uh, There ain't no force. But anyway, what Christian would believe such nonsense? Well, let me tell you about some. Some time ago, one of the churches in Hanford was strongly promoting a book by Paul Yang E. Cho called The Fourth Dimension. If you have this book, go home, burn it, throw it away. Uh, you don't want to have anything to do with this. In that book, he claims there is another spiritual dimension that we need to tap into, uh, just as every other supernatural being does. And so again, it's it's the force, it's the yin-yang, whatever you want to call it, and we just need to learn through meditation and prayer how to take control and get people to do whatever we want, throw around our own stormtroopers. We would call it the depths of Satan. Here's another example. When so-called Christian psychology was first making its assault on the church in the 1980s, its adherents compared it to the children of Israel spoiling the Egyptians by taking their riches on the Exodus. And so we would say, hey, why do we need anything from the world when we have the word of God? And they would say, well, the children of Israel took a bunch of riches from Egypt and God provided those. And these principles of psychology that these men have come up with they are like riches that are coming, you know, to help us. And so we need to Christianize their uh, methodologies. Never mind that one of the most renowned secular psychologists whose spoil we were to use is Carl Jung. You may not know this, but Carl Jung openly admitted that he had dialogues with a spirit being called Philemon. We call him Philemon the demon. 
Uh, you know, so, so who do you want to, what do you want to get your psychology from? The Bible, where God says he knows you between the soul and the spirit, or from a guy who's talking to a spirit being and coming up with concepts to help you. This is the depths of Satan. And so just when you think nobody would believe this, you find out that a lot of Christians get seduced by these things. Jesus had no other burden to put on them. One commentator explained it this way. He says, the burden upon the faithful was that of resisting the pressure of Jezebel and her group. Choosing to abstain from her evil practices doubtless resulted in trouble for them. Jesus promised to place upon them no other burden than continuing to stand against her. He says in verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. They were victorious, still holding fast, and they both could and should continue to hold fast. I emphasize here they could hold fast. It was a choice to be empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, this isn't what you want to hear when you're in a struggling situation, a, a, you know, a, a trial. You don't want to hear the Lord say, wait. Uh, it, it can be a little bit deflating. But what we need to always realize is that when Jesus says, hold fast or wait, it carries with it the empowerment to do that. He isn't saying, you know, this is going to be a burden I'm putting on. He says, look, you have to wait right now. I'm not going to judge Jezebel just yet. And you have to trust that God has strategies of his own, that he's trying to save Jezebel. He's trying to save her followers. He's got other things going on. So he says to you, wait. But in that word, there is power. You don't, it's not a word of power that you speak. It's a word of power that Jesus speaks. Any, in any command he ever gives you from his word is an enabling to do that. And so we can and obviously should do the things that he commands us to do. And one of them is wait. If you're a believer, you know that you can have victory over seduction because you've probably experienced it. Especially if you came to Christ later in life like I did. Immediately, sin was unattractive to me. I didn't need to try to quit sinning. I just didn't sin like I used to. Uh, I, there was no effort. When I was in the Roman Catholic tr uh, Church, there was a lot of effort that I put into not sinning. I'd go to confession on Saturday. I'd say my penance. And I really needed to go to confession after I said my penance. I, I mean, it could have been just a loop for me and for anybody. You know, and so but I was always trying really hard uh, to deal with that. And then when I became a Christian, when Jesus Christ saved me and his Holy Spirit came to indwell me, I didn't sin anymore the way I used to. Now, I still sinned and I still sin today, but I had a power that I, you know, over sin to say no to sin. And in those days, those were the days when you threw everything away, get rid of all my books and get rid of all my booze and get rid of all my weed and get rid of everything that reminds me of my old life. Wait, I could use some clothes. But, uh, you know, and, and you were just you were just set free. You were, you know, so we've experienced that. Ah, but time goes by and Satan has his strategies. If anybody knows how to push your buttons, it's the devil. And he's willing to let you have victory over sin for a while while he strategizes how he's going to try and trip you up in that area once you feel mature and able to handle it. And so verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. We've said before that overcomer is more or less synonymous with being born again. My works is in contrast to keeping Jezebel's works, and we keep them by walking in the spirit rather than in the flesh. 
A simple paraphrase of this, keep on following Jesus being led along by the spirit rather than being led astray by some Jezebel. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father. Power of the nations from verse 26 is defined quoting Psalm 2 here in verse 27. That supremely messianic psalm proclaims the second coming of Jesus to rule over the nations of the world. Now, here's the verse you've been waiting for. And I will give him the morning star. Pages and pages have been written about the morning star. It is especially controversial because the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in chapter 14 of his wonderful book, identifies Satan using this phrase. But then Jesus calls himself the morning star at the end of the revelation in 2216. And so what's up? Well, a large part of the confusion comes from the translation in the King James Version and the New King James Version and others of morning star in Isaiah 14 verse 12 as Lucifer. It makes morning star sound like a name rather than a description. So hear me on this. Morning star is not a proper name. It is a description and it can be used of other individuals besides Satan and Jesus. And so you took a step back just and I said, wait a minute, is this a heresy? I always was taught that Lucifer was the name of the devil. In fact, I've taught, you know, I've said, and same with me over the years, uh, but hear me out. Apologist Don Stewart explains it this way. He says, the reason Lucifer has been understood to be a proper name of the devil has to do with the Latin translation of a Hebrew term. This word was understood to be a proper name for the king of Babylon. It means light bearer, or in Latin, Lucifero. The Latin title became a popular name for this figure. When the King James translators rendered the Hebrew name into English, they kept the popular term Lucifer for the devil. By the way, this is the only place in any Bible where the term Lucifer appears. Uh, it's not like he's, the devil is called Lucifer in a bunch of different places. It's a mistranslation of the phrase morning star into Latin. And then it, they say, hey, that's a good description of the devil. Let's make it his name. Here's a commentary on Isaiah's use of the phrase. He says the first reference of morning star in Isaiah is not to the devil at all, but to the human king of Babylon. The whole section is directed to the king of Babylon, who is clearly depicted as a human ruler. Other kings of the earth address him. He's called the man, and he possesses a physical body. At the same time, Isaiah seems to go beyond a description of a mere mortal king. A double fulfillment for prophecy is thus probably in view. And so these are the facts. Isaiah uses morning star as a description of a human king, the king of Babylon. Isaiah also uses morning star as a description of the devil. And Jesus uses morning star of himself in his second coming as the rightful king of kings. Morning star was, and it is, a description for someone, either human or supernatural, who aspires to rule over the nations of the earth. In Revelation 2.26, we read, I will give you power over the nations. And then in verse 28, Jesus said, I will give you the morning star. They're parallel. Power over the nations and the morning star are two ways of saying the same thing. They're sort of interchangeable. And so Jesus is coming in power to rule the nations. And when he does, we will be ruling with him. He will give us the morning star 
it means that we will share with uh, him his authority over the nations of the earth. So hopefully that all makes sense. And you can correct your friends now who think Lucifer is the name of the devil and just have fun with that. But anyway, and if you don't understand that, Gene Jr. will be available at the end of the service to talk with you more about it. And Jacob Kelso, I'll be making coffee drinks. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus' words to each church are for all the churches, both then and now. Sexual immorality, leading as it does to spiritual adultery, is a prevalent strategy being employed against the church right now. I was going to give a bunch of examples, but, you know, you're all smart enough to know that that's a true statement. And we don't need to dwell on things that are salacious. But it's obvious that there is a, uh, a, a kind of a bad flow of sexuality going on in our culture right now in terms of an attack on biblical morality and on biblical marriage. Uh, and it's rampant and it's going to get worse, I think. I was reading just this morning one of the news magazines I get online. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of what's called the Equality Act. President Biden is urging Congress and to pass the Equality Act. It, it messes around with gender and things like that. Uh, and it's so bad, and this is true, it's so bad that even radical feminist groups are against it because they recognize that it will destroy all of the gains that women have made in getting their rights because it will put men, take a transgender situation where a man says, no, I'm really a woman, um, well, it destroys, for example, women's sports. There won't be any women's sports because there will uh, transgender men will be the, you know, the ones who win women's sports. Imagine Bruce Jenner competing against women when he was at his peak. I mean, he, he beat every man. And so he could certainly easily beat every woman. I could probably get an Olympic medal in something. <laughs> If I identified as a woman, and I don't mean to make fun of this, but uh, it goes even farther. If you follow it to its logical conclusion, it will be wrong against the law, against the Constitution for us to teach biblical morality, to say that there are a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship and it should be heterosexual. That will be a violation of the civil rights of other individuals, and it's going to come down heavy on religious organizations and charities and schools uh, and churches. And so that's the world we live in. We can nonetheless hear the Lord say, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last more than the first, hold fast. 